For the purpose of this lawsuit episode, we'll have our producer, Zach Dennis, narrating as well. Hey, guys. You'll start to hear his voice in the first section and as we get into the Thiokol lawsuit. Hogs are run right out there in front of you. You'll see them on the way to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going and coming. <laughs> Hogs and deer. Down this road. beautiful area. Growing up, they had wild horses and the black, um, boulder hogs and like the eagles. The bald eagle, they fly across all this land over here. This is, this is Thaco. He had some everything I'd seen him doing one time. Every piece of land has a story to tell. The 7,400 acres on Horsepen Bluff, where the thiacal plant used to be, and where Janie is standing just outside, is a palimpsest. Before thiacal, this area was the site of two plantations, Fairfield and Bellevue, where more than 200 enslaved people worked on cotton, indigo, and rice fields. And even before then, it was home and hunting ground to Native Americans from the Creek Nation. So when Thiokol settled here in 1964 and cleared the lush green forest with plans to build the largest rocket for NASA, it was building on top of these histories and on top of graves, old homes. With Thiokol, the land transformed into a home for manufacturing and industry, for the moonshot, for war munitions, tear gas, chemicals, and pesticides. And in 1971, when the explosion killed 29 in the Trip Flare Manufacturing Building, it became a site of tragedy too. With the end of the Vietnam War, Thiokol pivoted from munitions to agricultural pesticides. Meanwhile, the company was still making moves in the space and aeronautics industry and eventually in 1976 sold the plant to Union Carbide. Union Carbide continued to produce pesticides after inheriting the former Thiokol plant. And years later, this company, as well, would be tied to an industrial disaster, not in Woodbine, but in its plant in Bhopal, India. It wasn't just any industrial accident. It was the single worst disaster in history, the Bhopal gas leak. The breakdown and failures to maintain most of the pesticide plant's safety systems led to a dangerous gas leak of hazardous chemicals. The gas drifted over the dense neighborhoods in Bhopal, choking tens of thousands of residents. The final death toll was estimated to be between 15,000 to 20,000. People with related injuries and illnesses numbered half a million. Two years later, in 1986, Thiokol's reemergence in the rocket booster industry ends in a horrifying spectacle. The Challenger space shuttle explodes 73 seconds after liftoff. The reason? Thiokol and NASA officials had ignored repeated warnings from their engineers 
that weather conditions were just too cold that day. It's a story that's repeated over and over again throughout history. Stories of negligence and dangerous working conditions enabled by a system focused on gaining capital at the expense of safety and at the expense of human life. This is Tripwire. And so I sat through the whole trial, and it was extremely, extremely interesting. Arnold Young, now a retired lawyer in Savannah, sat in on the trial related to the Thiokol explosion. To oversee, oversee is not the right word, but to follow. Arnold was hired to observe the trial by the sprinkler company whose system failed to extinguish the fire that started in building M-132 the day of the explosion. Because they were very concerned that they might be brought in. They were obviously a little nervous, but they never got sued. Arnold ended up watching the entire three-week trial in 1974 which he says is one of the most interesting and complex cases he's encountered in his nearly six-decade law career. Arnold still has the court order documents from the case, which he's annotated to help reporters like us understand the twists and turns of more than 10 years of litigation. Very, very interesting. And that's how I got into it and how I, pretty much how I know what I do know. For easier listening, we're breaking down the Thiokol case into two episodes. In this one, we'll talk about the first part of the lawsuit, the trial that determined whether the U.S. government was liable for the explosion. That's the trial that Arnold sat in on. Then in the next episode, we'll take a look at the damage proceedings, which was a separate series of trials. That's when the court determined how much money the survivors and victims' families got in compensation. This is part one, liability. So three weeks after the explosion, the Thiokol plant manager gets a call from the U.S. Army, and they tell him that the materials used in the trip flares had been misclassified. Instead of being a Class 2, which is the Army's lowest hazard level, they should have been a Class 7, which is the highest. Class 7s essentially have the potential to lead to violent explosions, such as the one at Thiokol. So the question becomes, why didn't that notice reach Thiokol sooner? And that's probably one of the most frustrating and baffling parts of this case, that there really wasn't an explanation besides maybe a breakdown in communication. There is a suggestion in the record that it was went to an official, Gary Weingarten. Apparently the document was found in his desk after the disaster. Ms. Weingarten, Mr. Weingarten was then residing in Tel Aviv and his testimony was not available. And the court never did get a hold of him for the case. And that is the, the, the thinking, the belief. Could not prove it. They could not take this particular man's deposition. Now, this is supposition. The people, wherever they got the information, 
you know, they might that guy was gone, and so they may have said he did it. I don't know, but the suspicion, at least, was that because they found apparently this notice in his desk, and he apparently was to have sent it on. Was there liability of the government? Who did what wrong? That was the question. It's a liability. Initially, the question of liability was aimed at both Thiokol, the company, and the U.S. government, which, remember, had contracted Thiokol for the military trip flares. But the lawsuit against Thiokol was dismissed under Georgia's workers' compensation law. Since Thiokol had already paid the injured and victims' families through the workers' comp insurance, they had fulfilled their duty. The employee is protected by workers' comp, even if he's at fault. In other words, you don't do something really stupid. You still get workers' comp if you get hurt, unless it's intentional or something like that. But, and if the employer is at fault, he pays. If he's not at fault, employer pays. You get hurt, you get paid, but the trade-off is you don't also get to sue. But that doesn't mean the insurance money employees got was enough, and in many cases it wasn't. It also doesn't mean that Thiokol wasn't, in some ways, negligent. In fact, for years, the International Chemical Workers Union had rallied against unsafe working conditions at the plant, according to a 1971 Savannah Morning News article. In building M132, where the trip flares were made, women were constantly running from fires. Struck something, it would create a spark. And discarded trip flare materials sometimes sat on piles in the floor. Tons of illuminates and flammable materials were stored in tight spaces. But ultimately, the workers' comp law protected Thiokol against litigation. But the U.S. government wasn't afforded the same immunity. And that's who the survivors and victims' families sued. There were multiple lawsuits that came from different groups of plaintiffs, but they were all eventually consolidated into one suit, or what's legally known as a mass tort. About 60 plaintiffs or individuals were suing the government for the same thing, their negligence that led to the Thiokol explosion. Because under the Federal Tort Claims Act, which is what you sue the government, and that's why there's no jury, it's just a judge, you have to show that the government, which is a big name, but it's people, were negligent, and that is that they did not do what they were supposed to do and had an obligation to do, that they should have done differently and better, and that the result was the whatever it was, hearing deaths and all that. Not everyone who was affected signed onto the cases, and they had good reasons. Some workers went back to Thiokol because they needed the income right away, and they didn't want to be part of a lawsuit that involved their employer. Plus, being part of the case is time-consuming, draining, and traumatic. Some survivors and family members said they were threatened by bad actors to drop the suits. You have the people that threatened Richard Spells Sr. about killing their son. Then you had the Davis family that was threatened and you had Bertha Brunswick. These people were finding victims at the hospitals through the local newspapers. 
In those days, small town papers announced local happenings, such as who was getting married, when relatives visited from out of town, that type of thing. Who was killed and who, and what, and, and who was still in the hospital and what hospital they were in, right? Everybody knew about the threats and the bad actors. Some endured in the face of the threats. Janie said her mom had someone accompany her to the trials in fear that someone would threaten her life. But none of the plaintiffs were expecting the trial to go on for as long as 17 years. Because this is a very complex case. It sounds easy, oh, it was a fire and exploded, but the science and all behind all of it. The trial for liability took place the summer of 1974 over the course of three intense weeks. At the Southern District Brunswick Court, Judge Alexander A. Lawrence presided over the non-jury trial. And he heard from both sides, the U.S. government and the employees and their kin, most of whom were from Camden County. Alec Lawrence, who was just a super guy, very bright, never went to law school but a hell of a judge, and if you read his writing, it's just remarkable. He was a very prominent historian, okay? And I'd like to have a drink with him, too. He's a good guy. Lawrence was a native of Savannah and was known for his decisions integrating the public school systems in Savannah and Augusta. More than 7,000 pages of testimonies, depositions, and exhibits were entered into the case. Judge Lawrence spent the next three years making his final opinion. This huge amount is called in law, discovery, depositions, and looking for documents. I mean, it's not an intersection collision about who had the red light. It's a lot of sophisticated engineering stuff and science, all kind of scientific and tracking down in the government who had what and how these decisions got made. You know, when you get to the end and you say, oh, this, 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 yeah, really. But it's not so simple. For those three weeks, the courtroom was a pressure pot. Arnold, our legal observer, said that one of the lawyers for the U.S. government had gotten so involved with the case. He had dug in so much, so intense. He had to go to the hospital because he just kind of collapsed one day. And he was okay after that. I mean, when it really is complex. So it took, see, the accident, the event was in 1971. His decision came out in 77. The findings in the case really exposed the downfalls of the bureaucratic maze and the consequences of profit over safety. But it also showed how people sometimes become desensitized to repeated warnings and risks that the danger starts to become overlooked. It's a phenomenon that sociologist Diane Vaughn coined as normalization of deviance. Vaughn describes normalization of deviance as occurring when people within an organization or corporate structure become so insensitive to deviant practice that it no longer feels wrong. She says, quote, insensitivity occurs insidiously and sometimes over years because disaster does not happen until other critical factors line up, end quote. The case findings reveal bodies of evidence that called into question the U.S. Army's classification of the trip flare materials, years before the explosion ever happened. Both the Army and Thiokol saw the warning signs, but never really took any substantial action. Before 1967, 
the trip flare materials were actually classified as a C7 explosive already, but the Army downgraded it to a 2 based on their standard test at the time. And you have to appreciate there's a 2 and a 7, but there's a 3, 4, 5, 6 in between it. You know, how you, how, and how, above that, I don't even know, how you classify a particular situation. The key difference was that trip flares were considered a pyrotechnic, not an explosive, and didn't have the potential of detonating violently. If you want to get technical, it's a difference in the combustion process. And if you think about it, an explosion is a fire. It's just fast, extremely fast. It's a fire, but of a special variety. But there were several experts who disagreed with the idea that pyrotechnics could not lead to an explosion. Those experts believed that the tests the Army conducted were completely flawed, and that pyrotechnics could very well detonate violently. One of those experts was Joseph H. McLean, an authority in the field of pyrotechnics who ended up serving as an expert witness during the trial. The difference is how it worked, and his point was that it was not just a fire, it was an explosion. He said the tests that the Army relied on for classification, quote, miserably failed. He had warned Army officials years before about the dangers. In his testimony, McLean said that he had waged a campaign with, quote, evangelical zeal against the belief that pyrotechnics would not explode. It was almost like a labor of love, he said. Another expert in the field, his name was J.E. Settles, had similar views as McLean and actually published a paper in 1968 that called out the deficiencies in the testing and classification of dangerous materials. In his conclusion, the munitions industry needed to reevaluate their practices when handling pyrotechnics, such as trip flares. To add on to that, Thiokol had also conducted their own test at an army base in Utah. Those experiments showed that aluminum materials could very well explode in confined spaces. Not only explode, but quote, violently explode. The British military conducted tests as well, which showed similar results about the materials in question. The U.S. Army had this information in their possession. Picatinny Arsenal, which is the military base in New Jersey that had contracted with the Thiokol plant in Woodbine, had that very report in their library. So there's this mounting body of evidence, but it isn't until November in 1970 that the Army seriously considers the flaws in their testing system, reclassifies the trip flare materials, and issues a notice about the change. That notice states, quote, It is further recommended that an interim hazard classification of Class 7 be assigned to loose pyrotechnic compositions during handling, storage, and transportation, until more meaningful tests can be adopted." End quote. I mean, that was not just a piece of paper. That would have really stopped the show. They would have stopped everything and done something. There's no doubt about it, I mean. The note makes it as far as the Picatinny Arsenal, the military base that oversaw the Woodbine trip flare contract. But that's where it gets lost, or apparently stuck in the Army official's desk drawer. Had it gone to Thiokol, handling and storage of the materials in building M132 would have changed, and Thiokol most likely would have had to build a different safety system. M132 was built only to handle fires. Materials sat piled in hallways, 
The cure room, a space of 35 by 22 feet, housed thousands of pounds of illuminants that were laid to settle in the curing process. It was right next to where the women worked on the assembly line. On the day of the explosion, the fire started with a spark on the line. But eventually it became clear enough that there was a fire, but the fire equipment would never, no matter what, have made any difference. I mean, it was such an extreme and fast situation. The fire spread, lighting up the material along the assembly line and on the floor, almost like a fuse, until it reached the cure room. And when the fire went right down the hall, they didn't separate it as they should have. And that was when it blew up, and it blew all to hell. In the weeks before the February 3rd explosion, five minor fires ignited in building M132. At least two of those fires were reported to Picatinny Arsenal. And at that point, the reclassification notice had already reached the Army base. Both Thiokol and the Army base had a responsibility and avenues to ensure safe working conditions. And both were aware of the frequent fires, but still no meaningful action was taken. Government attorneys tried to get off on various technicalities. They argued the depression in the ground from the explosion was not, quote, a crater, which is one of the characteristics of a detonation. So the materials couldn't have been a Class 7. They tried to pin the blame entirely on Thiokol and poor housekeeping in M132, when the company itself had knowledge of the explosive risk. Ultimately, none of the government's reasonings convinced Judge Lawrence that the Army, and thus the U.S. government, was not responsible. But the, the point here was the government had an affirmative obligation to go do something, not just stand by. That was the argument. And that they, in fact, did actually control a lot of what went on. But they didn't do it very well, okay? And so that's what the big argument was. There's no doubt that Thaco was, was negligent. But there's also no doubt that, in my mind, and in judges' minds, that the United States was too. So, three years after the lawsuit is filed, and six years after the actual event of the explosion, the liability question is settled in 1977. The U.S. government appeals the decision. But not before Judge Lawrence first fixes the damage amount for one of the survivors. Lawrence goes ahead and conducts the damage proceeding or trial for Thomas Arts and his wife. It's what's known as a test case, common where there's a lot of claimants or plaintiffs, said Arnold. If Arts's case gets through the government appeals, then the court can begin trying the other plaintiffs, a total of more than $700 million in claims. According to the court records, Arts was the first to file a claim, so he was the first to be tried. Arts, a white man, did not work on the assembly line. He was a quality control inspector in M132 when the blast happened. In the explosion, he was hurled 150 feet and lost his right arm, suffering a severe damage to his left leg that required physical therapy, as well as other injuries. He was totally disabled as far as work was concerned. 
The attorneys for him and his wife asked for more than $1 million in the claim, and they ended up getting half of that, almost 600000 In 1978, that's a value of about $2.7 million. The Arts' attorney told local media that he believed that was the largest award ever made in Georgia by a federal court. But the actual award got stalled because the U.S. government appeals the liability decision. Judge Lawrence's decision gets sent to the Fifth Circuit of Appeals the following year. Two out of three judges agree that the government is liable, but the dissenting judge calls for something called an en banc. It's when the full panel of judges in the Fifth Circuit rehears the case. En bancs happen on rare occasions, and generally when there's a matter of importance to be settled. So all 25 judges of the Fifth Circuit review the case, and they determine that there's questions that can't be answered as a federal court. So they decide to send this case down to the Georgia Supreme Court. This takes several months, but the Georgia Supreme Court eventually agrees with Judge Lawrence's original decision based on state law precedents and sends the case back up to the federal appeals court. The full panel of judges review the case again after the legal clarifications and affirms Judge Lawrence's decision that the U.S. government is liable. There's a period of time where the plaintiffs wait and see if the government is going to appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. But that doesn't happen, and Arts and his wife get paid out. By now, it's 1982. Judge Lawrence had passed away at the age of 72 in the midst of the appeal process, and a new judge, Barry Avant Edenfield, gets assigned to the case. Attorneys from the U.S. government say they have every intention of seeing the rest of the settlement claims through in a timely manner. And there's hope on the horizon, finally, for the rest of the plaintiffs. Except not quite. On December 27, 1982, U.S. government attorneys file a motion to dismiss the rest of the plaintiffs' claims because of a change in Georgia law. Remember workers' compensation? The government was now asserting that it deserved the same type of immunity that Thiokol had as an employer. The immunity that prevented Thiokol from being sued for more money than what was outlined in the workers' comp insurance. Recent changes to the state law would allow the government to identify itself as, essentially, an extension of Thiokol, a, quote, principal contractor. It was just another tool for the U.S. government to shield itself from liability. In the next episode, we'll hear how that plays out. The Tripwire Podcast is a production of the Savannah Morning News. Executive producers are Anne and Pat Longstreth, Zach Dennis, and me, Nancy Guan. Music for the show was written and performed by Andrew Sovine. Learn more about his work at andrewsovine.com. Special thanks goes to Janie Everett and the Thiokol Memorial Project. Learn more about the project at thiokolmemorial.org. <laughs>